whenever we're hiring for people, it's intelligence, work ethic and humility are the most important things. We have a obsession with always wanting to be better, always wanting to learn. If you have that ability, that intelligence, that hunger to learn, then people will develop at an extraordinary rate. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm joined today by Steve Beckett. Steve is the founder of Sourcebreaker, an award-winning recruitment technology company. Having spent six years at the S3 Group, Steve took the leap to launch Sourcebreaker in 2014, and they have absolutely taken the industry by storm, growing from three people at the beginning to 70 people today. In fact, Sourcebreaker has been listed by the Financial Times as one of the top 100 fastest growing companies in Europe. Steve is a past winner of the Recruiter Awards Entrepreneur of the Year, and Sourcebreaker has won multiple different awards, including Best Small Company to Work For. And it's an absolute uh, pleasure to introduce you to Steve. Steve, thanks for being here. Thanks very much for having me, Mark. Appreciate it. All right. You're welcome. I'm looking forward to this. Now, this is actually our second attempt at this. We talked a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic. Um, and then the whole world turns up, turned upside down and the, you know, the conversation seemed less relevant. So I'm excited to have a chance to do this again. Could you start just by telling a little bit about your background and how Sourcebreaker was born? Yeah, sure. So, um, as you mentioned, I spent a number of years at the S3 Group, which is quite a large international staffing agency. Um, left originally to set up a recruitment company and set about building some tools for recruiters whilst on my um, my six-month non-compete clause after, after leaving uh, my prior employer uh, and spotted a huge gap in the market for search technology um, and so pushed into that space and Sourcebreaker was born and we're now um, you know, we're one of the leading providers of searching and matching technology around the world. Amazing. So can you like take me back to those early days and, and what, what that was like in that sort of startup environment? Um, because I think a lot of, actually one of the positives that came out of the pandemic is a lot of startups. And, uh, and sure. so I think a lot of people relate to that story. It's definitely, you know, it's not easy. Um, no. How did you guys like, you know, start and then grow so quickly. Yeah, sure. So the way that um, we started as myself and my co-founder was uh, uh, an old old friend of mine who was a software engineer. So he focused on the the technical build. And then what we did in the meantime to fund building the um, the platform was one we'd saved up a um, money from our previous employers to, to invest in the business. But building a software company is quite an expensive um, quite expensive thing to do. So what um. What I also set about doing was building some other tools for recruiters, actually at the time using spreadsheets, so really basic tools to create, but that were really high value for recruiters. So one of those products was it enabled a recruiter to map a market in under five minutes. So they would be able to identify who the top 100 employers were of any skill set in any location in under five minutes, which as you can imagine was quite a powerful tool. And we had a way through our recruitment knowledge and our um Excel knowledge, we were able to build really effective tools for people. So we monetized those, made a significant amount of revenue from those, which allowed us to fund building our full SaaS um, matching product. 
And so we we got our initial product to market with actually without like, taking any external funding because we were able to sell other products and services um, based on our own expertise to to raise that initial funding. So a big bit of advice I would give is do whatever you can to start getting invoices out the door one way or the other as early as you can to start generating revenue. Absolutely, that's that's good advice. I think people often take month, weeks and months like getting their website perfect and like planning yeah. you know how they're going to you know win customers and so on instead of just actually cracking on and and 100 generating business which um so you had this minimum viable product which mm-hmm. you actually started selling it, it be, and so that was this market mapping tool mm-hmm. um how did that evolve into the fully you know fledged software uh, that you have today? Yeah, so my co-founder, who's a software engineer, was focused on building the fully-fledged SaaS product. And so what we did, we we benefited from being able to go to market with some relatively basic but high-value products. And then we could work out very quickly what was of particular interest to people, what was particularly valuable, and also what did we think would be valuable but actually turned out to be less valuable or was just too complex for people to use to be able to get the value that they needed to get from it. Um, So using that information, that helped us to make sure that we were building a product that was fit for market. Um, I think that combined with our industry knowledge really allowed us to focus on how do we provide recruiters with exceptionally high value but really importantly when building a product how do we make it as easy as possible to use there's loads of products out there that get built that um, are fantastic concepts but because you're trying to get a recruiter who's under you know a salesperson under a huge amount of pressure to hit their targets doing anything to get them to move away from how they currently work and to work in a new way with a new piece of technology is actually the probably the biggest challenge of all and that really helped us to understand that and make sure that we were building highly effective products but that actually were easy for recruiters to adopt and use awesome there's actually two stories that i'd love to tell today steve one is the story of how recruiters can um have better access to candidates and and get better at sourcing because right now many markets around the world are candidate driven you know um recruiters have lots of orders but you know, are struggling to fill those those jobs. So there's um, untapped revenue potential there within their business. Um, and the, but the second story is also your own uh, experience of scaling a company because that's also an interesting and and you know uh, I'm sure you've learned lots of lessons along the way there. That although your technology business could are you know transferable over to growing a recruitment business as well um so starting with that topic then you mentioned that like getting invoices out the door early on was important how did you guys actually you know there's three of you and one of you is concentrated on the technical stuff how did you actually go to market and start winning clients so very much um just get on the phone and call people up, sell the product, sell the services that we had to offer. Um, Coming from a staffing background, um, as a business, we were very much a sales-led organization from day one. And so, um, would yeah, just make a high volume of calls, sell the product, sell the services to people uh, and get in the door that way. I think what you mentioned previously about people spend a huge amount of time honing their website and honing their messaging and, and, and that kind of thing. We were very much like, let's get on the phone, 
get invoices um, out the door so we can raise revenue to really focus on building a website. I think when you first start a business, it's natural to think, right, I need to get my website perfect. It needs to look incredible. I need to spend ages on the content and the wording. The reality, particularly as a staffing company, not just a technology company, but actually as a staffing company, no one's looking at your website. Like There's millions of staffing agencies out there what you need when you first start is, and you can do this for a few hundred dollars or a few hundred pounds, is get a really basic template website, get some you know, reasonably compelling language on there, but don't don't spend a huge amount of time pouring over every single word that you use because the reality is the staffing world is so competitive. People aren't going to be reading your marketing in you know your marketing website and thinking, wow, this is, you know, this is a completely different staffing agency. So spend as little time as possible on that. Focus on getting invoices out the door. And then when you've raised some revenue through your invoices, you can then spend on getting a much more exciting, fully fledged website out. But I think people spend too much time spending their hard earned money on um websites and things like that before they're actually going out and re- generating revenue. So everything should be focused on get that first invoice out the door because you need to prove that you've actually got a, you know, a potential business. If you're not able to out there go out there and make placements, then you don't actually know if you can successfully start billing within a recruitment company. There's thousands of people that have been fantastic billers in businesses, but then when they've tried to do it themselves, haven't actually managed to get the same level of success. Focus on getting the invoice out the door and then everything else will follow. All right. That's great advice. And, you know, it must have been challenging, though, in the early days because no one had heard of you right now. Mm. You know, you've got a really high, you know, very visible brand and, and, you know, definitely in the UK and I know in other parts of the world, uh, people have heard of Sourcebreaker, mm. but you're calling up recruitment companies who don't know don't, you, who you are or what you do. Sure. How did you get over that initial, like, well, we've never heard of you kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. So being brand new to market, you can push that as a real advantage. And then being established in the market, you can push that as a real advantage. So we're now, because we've been around for seven years or so, people take comfort from the fact that we're an established brand and they know that buying Sourcebreaker is not a risky endeavor. It's, you know, you know that it's an established business that's got a proven track record. Obviously at the start, there's none of that. So we had no history, no track track record. And like you said, it's quite difficult to then get people to buy. So we focused on the small to medium sized agency market where we're dealing with owner led businesses who are typically far more risk uh, you know, far more uh, open to taking a risk and also if you can put a compelling case in front of them they, if they have the cash in the bank they'll make an investment at the enterprise side when you're dealing with much larger organizations people like Hayes, Adeco, those kind of companies they don't want to take the risk on something brand new so you focus on the small to medium market and then very much push that you're brand new as a huge selling point and a huge benefit so when we would be going in and pitching to people early on They'd be like, well, you've, you know, you guys are brand new. It's like, yeah, exactly. So imagine the competitive advantage you're going to get from being the first to market on this product. Here's, um, you know, here's the results that you're going to get from it. None of your competition are using this product. So not only are we going to find you twice as many quality candidates, but we're going to find you twice as many quality candidates your competition aren't finding. So those candidates are going to be getting fewer calls from people. The jobs that we're identifying for you, they're going to be getting fewer calls. So your conversion rates on those candidates and on those job opportunities will be far higher because the competition isn't there. Uh, and what we would do for people, because we would enhance people's search capability, we'd say to them, look, send us the searches you're doing at the moment. So someone might look for a Java developer in an investment bank, for instance. We would say, send us the way that you're doing that search at the moment. And what we'll do is we'll We'll put that through our technology and we'll be able to tell you how many extra candidates you're going to find. 
So someone would send their search over and they might find 50 candidates off their own bat. When they put it through the source breaker technology, that might go to 150 or 200 candidates. So we can say, look, we've tripled, quadrupled the volume of candidates you have available. Have a look at the quality. These guys are just as good as the candidates you're finding, but you've now got four times as many of them. But every other recruiter is searching the same way as you are. So every recruiter, by and large, is missing a significant proportion of these candidates. When you call them, they're going to be far more receptive to a call. And that's how you really get traction as a as a new startup business. Is you guys are going to be the only people to have this product and service. And I think on the recruitment side of things um one of the big benefits as a staffing agency when you're much newer and much smaller typically you're going to be far more experienced as a recruiter than your competition who might be much larger they might have much more resources they might be much larger but actually as an organization at Sourcebreaker. we typically prefer to work with smaller recruitment businesses because we know that someone at a director level or with 10 years experience is most likely to be working on our roles rather than a really big established household name where you're more likely to have somebody not always but you're more likely to have someone working on your roles who's only got say six months nine months recruitment experience there's plenty of really good recruiters who've only been doing the job for you know a few months but typically the more experience somebody has often the better results you're going to get from them so as a small staffing agency that would be a big thing that i'd be pushing on is that you're going to have an experienced recruiter running and working your roles as opposed to work with a large organization that's likely to have people with slightly less experience working on the roles. Amazing. I love how you took what could be perceived as a, a weakness or a constraint and you turned it into a client benefit. So Absolutely. yeah, great, great stuff. So can you walk me through the stages of scaling your business? Because like even in the first, you guys grew so rapidly in the beginning from three people, I think you got to you know, 50 or 60 people within three or four years. Mm-hmm. Um, what were the sort of key milestones? Because this is a tricky where, like you, I imagine at the beginning, you personally were selling the product. Mm-hmm. And so you're generating revenue, but you're also at the same time trying to hire and train people. Yes, You can get spread very thin. How did you, <laughs> like, okay, well, let me, t- I'll let you tell the story, but uh, yeah. what were the key milestones in getting up to like 63 people in three and a half years? Yeah, sure. So like you say about being spread thin, I think anytime you start a business, it's it's difficult not to become all consumed by it because you have this huge pressure on your shoulders. We think I've got to make this work. I've got to be successful with this. Um, and so, yeah, to be... To say it was spread thin, it was, would definitely be a good description. So what would typically happen, I'd be up at five in the morning and I'd be on to our developers who were in a two-hour time zone, um, slightly behind us on the product side with my co-founder. Um, and we were talking with them, working through what would be going on. And then from 7 to 8, I'd be dealing with any emails that would come in. And then from 8 a.m., we'd be on the phones trying to catch recruitment business leaders, recruitment business owners um, on the phone before they've really started their day. So the first few hours of the day would be cold calling, trying to get into businesses. Then um, later in the day, we'd be going on those meetings, going and meeting with the potential founders, and then also implementing customers as well. So it was a combination of product sales, onboarding the customer as well, and then trying to hire people, trying to raise investment as well. So it was a crazy, crazy time. How my wife stayed with me through all of that, I have absolutely no idea because it was literally five in the morning till 10, 11 at night, most nights, um, and then weekends often um, as well. And one of the things that I learned quite quickly is that 
that's great to be able to do that. And obviously you're, you're typically going to do things better than anybody that you bring in to do often because you care so much about it and you've originated it. But one of the best bits of advice I got was, um, if you can find somebody who can do a part of your job, 80% as well as you can do it, then just give it to them, um, and move it on because you're never going to be able to scale if you're not able to delegate and give people, uh, responsibility to, to take from your plate. So spend, the first year or two just working crazy crazy hours and then started to bring people through who are able to take a lot of that pressure off um and we've always hired for a couple of things over all else because we feel it gives us a competitive advantage so one of those things is potential um and ability um rather than years and years of experience so we would value far more highly someone's potential rather than huge amount of experience so we wouldn't hire somebody with 10 years experience thinking they must be good if they have 10 years experience there is millions of people around the world with 10 years of experience of doing a job that do not do that job at all well we feel that if you hire hungry ambitious people with a willingness to learn then they will be able to pick things up very very quickly uh, and be able to grow there's some exceptions to that for example like you can't hire a high potential finance person who's not an accountant to run your finance division for instance um but typically in most roles particularly commercial roles you hire people with ability um and a work ethic and one of the things that really underpins that is humility is critical for us um in every hire so whenever we're hiring for people it's intelligence work ethic and humility are the most important things and the reason why we think humility is so key is we have a obsession with always wanting to be better always wanting to learn and i feel that a new graduate or a new hire into source breaker can teach me things and i'm open to hearing their feedback and and learning from them and we want that instilled across the business where people are willing to learn from everybody if you have that ability that intelligence and that hunger to learn then people would develop at an extraordinary rate if you combine intelligence with an ego people don't actually develop very quickly and you find that um you can stall your business very quickly because if people are arrogant they're not open to learning new things they're not open to change they're not open to being wrong um and that causes real problems. The humility thing is absolutely essential. There's a book that I would highly recommend to anybody looking to scale a business called Black Box Thinking. It's all about an attitude to um, failure and how important it is to give people that freedom and that comfort to understand when things are wrong how do we learn from that how do we make sure we improve things next time as opposed to feeling like if you get something wrong you need to make excuses or you need to hide it um, and again that kind of culture can only really really work where you have a humble workforce where people are open to being wrong amazing i agree a hundred percent i think the profile you've just described is a um you know, those key characteristics, intelligence, work ethic, humility. Um, I'm of the same mindset. Like I believe that I can, no matter how much experience someone has, I'm confident that they can learn something from me. And likewise, I also assume going into every interaction and every relationship that I can learn something from them as well. Mm. And because I've now had thousands of interactions with hundreds of different recruitment companies, including some of the fastest growing firms and some of the biggest builders in the world. And that exchange of ideas uh, with people who are frankly much smarter than I am has meant that I now have, you know, uh, a toolkit of strategies, you know, habits, techniques, you know, attitudes, which uh, are the common, you know, uh, common traits of the top producers in the world. So, um, you have to go. You have to have that mindset of wanting to learn and wanting to always get better. 
I did a poll on LinkedIn recently to find out what fee percentage recruiters charge, and it confirmed what I'd learned from speaking with so many recruiters every day. The majority of recruiters are undervaluing their service and cutting their fees to become more competitive. Listen, if you want to protect your cash flow and build reserves to protect your business against whatever might happen in the future, you need to be earning more for each placement, not less. The challenge, of course, is how to increase your fees and still be competitive. iIntro has helped hundreds of recruiters to make small but critical adjustments to the way they pitch and win business so they can win more clients who are also willing to pay higher fees. For example, one of their clients typically earned £5,000 per placement. But just a few weeks after working with iIntro, she won a new piece of business on a retainer, so in other words, she got a deposit, and her fee was an incredible £20,000, four times her average. If you'd like to see how iIntro can help you to grow your recruitment business and increase your average fees, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained and book a free consultation. There's no obligation, and if you mention that you're a listener of the Resilient Recruiter podcast, iIntro have pledged to offer you a 25% discount off any of their services. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained to get started. Can I ask, um, how do you assess these things like potential, you know, work ethic and so on? Because they're, you know, they're notoriously difficult. It's, I agree 100% there on why you value those, but how do you actually know if someone genuinely has those or if they just come across well at an interview? Yeah. So there's a few indicators that we would take. So one would be a high quality degree from a high quality university is normally a a good indicator. None of these things are bulletproof, but when you're looking at it from a probability standpoint, there's a high probability that somebody who has a first class degree, for example, or 4.0 GPA, whatever it might be, um, is likely to be a hard worker. They could be extraordinarily intelligent um, and I've just got through like that, but actually the the volume of people that have the extraordinary intelligence without the work ethic, I find is, is reasonably low. So that in itself is a, a good indicator, but then also looking at people's work history. So when they were at college or university, did they actually work through that period as well? So did they have an additional job or did they just literally do their degree and off they go? Because again, you can have somebody who's got a good but not top top class degree. If they haven't worked through university and they haven't achieved right at the top in terms of their education, then that's not, that starts to give a few question marks. Where's where's the hunger there to um, to develop and improve? Um, and a lot of it, you get a feeling from people from the conversations. So naturally, I've done thousands of different interviews now, as so you can start to get a feel for when you're speaking to people. Do they have that work ethic? So looking at yeah, what do they do outside of work? What are they interested in? Something for me that I find really interesting is people that do sports that are far more your success is determined far more by your will rather than your skill. So a football or soccer player, for example, a lot of the time they'll have an innate ability that makes them good at that sport. Whereas things like being a, um, you know, like cycling, for example, or marathon running, there's a huge amount of mental strength that needs to go into doing long distance cycling, long, long distance running, for example. And those kind of things to me are really interesting because you don't get lazy people running marathons. It just doesn't, 
you know, it doesn't happen. So that's a good indicator as well as their, their hobbies and their activities outside of school. Um, and then looking at their achievements in their prior work history as well. So what have they done um, in their prior work history that they're particularly proud of that points to a really strong work ethic? Um, so I think it's a combination of their education, their work background, their interests outside of work. Um, and you just get a feel, I think, for it once you've done a, um, a volume of interviews. Awesome. No, that makes sense. And can I ask, like, what's your definition of, of work ethic, Steve? Because it's all very well for the founder to work from 5 a.m. till yes. 11 p.m., right? Yeah. But most, most employees are not going to do that. And, mm. you know, there's, there's definitely a, um, a feeling, whether it's accurate or, or unfair, that the younger generations, they just don't want to do that. They have different values and different priorities. And, you know, they value more is flexibility and work-life balance and, and, um, and that kind of thing. So how do you, how do you define work ethic? What, is, what exactly are you looking for here? Yeah, so it's a combination of things, really. It's, work ethic to me is not necessarily volume of hours worked. Like I think when I first started the business, it took a little while for me to get used to the idea that you know people weren't going to work five in the morning till 11 p.m. If you um, speak to Adam, who's our CRO um, and runs a business alongside me, um, he would say, you know, when we first started out together, um, I was probably quite a lot more intense than I am now. Uh, I just had yeah, incredible expectations around, you know, volume of work, what hours worked, that kind of thing. And very quickly, fortunately for me and for, you know, for the, for the people that joined the business, as I worked out that, like you say, not everybody's going to work founder type hours for obvious reasons. They're not, you know, they don't have as much on the line. The rewards for them long-term won't be the same. Um, it's just, you know, it's just not going to happen. So for us, what we really like is people that will work hard during the time that they're working. So there's loads of people that are quite happy to get into an office at seven in the morning, leave at seven at night, but actually not really get a huge amount done. It's like this coming in, getting a high volume of work done. Um, and then when the need arises, we would expect people to work longer hours, whether that's earlier or later, but not like not uh, uh, typically um so there's no expectation of people being in the office till seven eight at night in any way shape or form but what we try and encourage is that when people are in and they're working they work extremely hard and they probably work harder for us than they might do in a normal job but then we we feel that it's very much a two-way street we don't think that um you know candidates should be subservient to their employer by any means it's a it's a mutual relationship it's an equal relationship and so we'll give people um lots more holiday than most companies so we do 30 days holiday but then with christmas we give an extra couple of days so it normally works out about 32 days as standard holiday for people we tried unlimited holiday and actually what we found was people took a bit less holiday because they felt uncomfortable not knowing where the boundaries were so we said look let's just make it a really significant amount of holiday we have flexi time as well um so people can take longer lunches start later finish earlier however they want to do it so we we feel that it's like we expect you got to work really really hard while you're in but also we're going to give you plenty of time to make sure you don't burn out you can have breaks as well but also by the nature of the people that we hire hard-working people we don't we don't tell people you need to work later, you need to do this, you need to do that. If they, they take it upon themselves that there's work that needs to be done, they'll get it done. But equally, we'll say to people like our technology team sometimes might have to do a release later in the evening. So we just say, look, just sleep in the next day. It's an incredibly autonomous environment where because we, t we try and get the hiring right at the start where it's like we'll hire hardworking people, we'll hire humble people they will take it upon themselves. If there's a particular piece of work that needs doing, they'll work a bit later to do it. Um, 
but that's not enforced by us. That's something that they would want to do. But then they know that they can take holiday. They can have a lion. If they need a lion, they can take a lion. Um, it's yeah, it's just an environment where people are responsible for their own time and their own day um, and feel comfortable doing that. Awesome. It's interesting what you said about the unlimited holiday. I have, I agree 100%. I think I don't like the unlimited holiday idea because I think people will not take their full holidays because they'll feel almost a like a peer pressure to they don't want to be seen to be the the lazy person in the team yeah. right so i think it's better the way you're doing it um look you've i'd love to hear what the factors are that contributed to you guys winning awards for the best company to work for because right now um there's a there's also a talent shortage within recruiting mm-hmm. and like lots of companies are growing and hiring again, which means that there's more competition for, you know, uh, people entering the business. Mm-hmm. How have you guys been able to attract and retain the ca- quality of people you've just described? Mm-hmm. So I think the the accolades that we've picked up through the years have been very, very powerful. So the Financial Times coming on that list two years in a row is one of the fastest growing companies in Europe uh, without any institutional backings. We've done it via uh, angel funding, which I think is also quite uncommon. Um, so having that accolade is really encouraging for people. But then combining that with winning best small company to work for in London um, and top 10 in the UK two years in a row, for anybody joining a business, for the kind of people we want, we want ambitious people. They want ambitious companies. So they can see that we're an ambitious business that's grown really quickly. But they can see that we've managed to do that whilst actually looking after our team by you know by becoming one of the top 10 companies to work for in the UK in, in consecutive years. And those are really difficult accolades to win. There's no hiding behind your growth numbers. You've either grown at the right rate or you haven't. And also the, the best companies to work for awards are famously incredibly difficult to win as well so that gives people confidence straight away when they walk in the door um but then how we retain people and how we win those awards is like i was referencing earlier that autonomous environment so people feel like they have real ownership over their work they feel like if they need to get their work done they will work longer to do it but that we give them the right kind of breaks and the right benefits we have a very social organization people like to go out and um, spend time together so we do a lot of that as well but i think the transparency as well all the way through the business is really really important so i'm always open to taking phone calls from people asking questions from them we've actually just done something to even enhance that further which is a monthly q a with me so people can ask questions about the business so they've asked about you know what's the latest on office space are we going to be moving to a, a bigger office as people come back into the office what's the growth plan what are we doing about funding and i'll always answer those questions as openly and honestly as i can i think people really value being able to feel like they have a relationship with their leader and that they can actually speak to them and ask some questions and they're going to get an honest answer. So we try and be as transparent as uh, as we possibly can at all times. And our instinct is typically to say yes to people on things. So unless there's a good reason to say no, um, we will always say you know yes. And we, we're open for people trying new things a huge amount of the time as well. So the black box thinking book really un- underpins how we think about work. And so people are not afraid to innovate and they're not afraid to try new things. 
and we'll encourage that. And if it doesn't work out, you know, it was worth trying. There's been plenty of things that we've tried that haven't worked. Uh, Unlimited Holiday, for example, we gave that a go. It didn't actually have the desired effect. So we changed that and made it a set amount of significant holiday for people. And I think people like the fact that they're, they don't have to be afraid to fail. If they work hard, they know it's a great place to be. Um, we'll socialize well and, um, and yeah, we'll make it as great a place to work as, be, for, as we can for people. Like we truly obsess on making it a great place to work. We run a quarterly engagement survey. We take the feedback that people give there um, and constantly try and improve the business. I love that, how you obsess about making a, bit, a great place to work. So it's not by accident, it's by design. You guys are thinking about yeah. it, talking about it, and then implementing things in the business that you think will enhance the the culture and the the um, prospects for everybody in the team. Um, so I, I just, this is so important, Steve, I'd love to just dig a little bit deeper because I can well see after you've won these awards and accolades, it becomes a virtuous cycle, right? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, you, you know, and then makes it easier and easier for people to join and you, you know, but before winning those awards, like earlier on in your growth trajectory, yeah. um, where you know, maybe it's, it is perceived to be a bit more risky. You haven't won those awards yet. Like, what were you doing earlier on to attract really top people? Because you're describing people who got firsts from, you know, top universities. Mm-hmm. Those individuals have lots of different opportunities and choices available, right? So, mm-hmm. how do you persuade them to join Sourcebreaker? So, I think explaining to people about the size of the opportunity where the business is going um the ambition of the company was you know was really important so people could see that there was a vision there that there was an opportunity to really grow and i think by focusing on potential rather than um you know huge amounts of experience that allowed us to attract intelligent hardworking, humble people that had a limited amount of experience um and could grow into their roles so the opportunities that we were providing to people early on were, yes, we were a less established company, but actually from their career, they could grow at a far faster rate with us than they might be able to in a traditional company. Um, and so the way that we did it was we paired our um, our early hires with mentors. So for example, um, Gareth, who's a product director at the business um, at the moment, he had no product experience before joining Sourcebreaker. He had some recruitment experience, but we could tell that he was really intelligent, really humble, and really hardworking. So we felt that he could grow very quickly with the business and pick up um, product very, very fast, but not leaving him to you know, flounder without any support. So what we would do is we would match Gareth with a... Um, with a mentor so somebody has a huge amount of product experience so they could give gareth the advice and the development that i couldn't i've never been a product person i'm a salesperson um in terms of my background so i wouldn't have been able to develop gareth into a product director um so pairing with a mentor and then gareth could learn bounce ideas off that mentor and then grow very quickly into the product world so gareth now from joining as the um you know, the sole product person now runs a multifunctional team that covers product design, um, data. There's a couple of other elements to, um, to what we do as well. So he's got three or four different um, departments that all report into him. He's moved from a, a junior role into a product role in the space of you know, four or five years. Um, and he's been running our product division for a couple of years. So within three years, he went from no product experience to running multifunctional teams. And that for me is how you're able to 
um, attract high quality people is giving them those opportunities. Now, had we wanted to hire an experienced product director from day one, one, the cost of the business would have been enormous because obviously if you're hiring someone with a huge amount of experience, um, there's a much higher cost to it. But also the people you're going to be able to attract is going to be smaller. You'd have to give away a huge amount of equity plus a big salary to get somebody to take a risk on a startup that, um, you know, that has no track record. So that's where we really got success from um, hiring people who didn't have a huge amount of prior experience in the role, but had enormous potential. Um, and we, we now benefit from a leadership team that's, they've all typically been here between at least three to five years. So they've now got a good, strong amount of experience in their roles, but actually are still relatively early in their careers because they took the opportunities that were given to them and have, um, you know, and have absolutely run with it. Um, so yeah, hiring ability... Definitely yeah, no, it's that. it's the exact same philosophy as when you were selling the business to your early customers. It's hmm. taking something that's a perceived weakness or um, limitation and actually turning it into a benefit. So the fact that you are a startup and you're growing fast, you've got this exciting vision and you know, you're a hugely ambitious company means that the opportunities for people to develop their careers quickly is much greater with you than it might be with a, a more established company. So mm. yeah, it's, it's brilliant. Before I go to my next question, I'd like to share one of the keys to my success in recruitment and in business. You may have noticed that a lot of the people I interview on this show have a coach. That's not a coincidence. Most high achievers have a coach, including me. I've worked with various coaches over the last 20 years, and it's been a huge factor in my own personal and business growth. Here's why. Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees, and it really helps to take a step back and look at how you can improve the business and get a fresh outside perspective from someone who's bringing new ideas and insights to the table. Plus, as a business owner, who is holding you accountable and helping you stay on track? So I want to encourage you, if you're not already working with a coach, get one. It doesn't have to be me. There are plenty of amazing coaches out there. Just find someone who you believe will add measurable value to your business and can help you get to the next level. If you do want to explore a coaching relationship with me, then you're welcome to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. This is not a sales call. My number one objective is to help you to get clear on your goals, identify the roadblocks that are holding you back, and create a strategic plan to increase your billings and grow your business. I promise you'll leave our session feeling focused, re-energized, and excited to take your business to the next level. You can apply at www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. Speaking of development, and you mentioned mentoring, what else are you doing to develop people within the business and that talent development piece? Yeah, so the mentoring is critical for our, our senior leaders. Um, they can benefit from a huge amount of experience of people who've been there and done it before. And then our leaders will then go and execute once they've worked alongside the mentor on the uh, on the strategic side of things. And then throughout the business, we have what we call... Well, anybody would call I suppose uh, book clubs so that's a typically done on a quarterly basis where within your team people will read books blogs watch videos related specifically to um, their department and then share what they've learned from um, you know from those books from those blogs amongst their amongst their peers and that is a really good way to foster new ideas and for people to develop we have an unlimited budget for um, Audible, Amazon, you know, business-related books or books related to specific departments so people can develop themselves. We put a 
a very high value on people self-developing. I've been to loads of different training courses, loads of different classes where the content's good, but it's often out of date by the time it's delivered. Reading books and blogs, there's a lot of current information that you can pick up that's specifically related to your area of expertise. And again, the type of people that we hire, they're obsessed with their own self-development anyway. And so a huge amount of the development side of things is actually the onus is on the person at Sourcebreaker to um, to take that upon themselves and share it with their peers. So you'll have people within the business. I can think of one of the guys, James, in the sales team. He's relatively inexperienced in comparison to the rest of the team, but is always coming up with new ideas, reading new things and sharing those with the team that the rest of the team then benefit. And I think that's really important that that's what underpins the business is you could have somebody with relatively little experience picking up new techniques, new things, and sharing that with the rest of the business that they can then benefit from. Uh, we also have training courses for our senior leadership team and a training program within each each department so they can learn Sourcebreaker inside out. But I think self-development is critical. When people are developing themselves, they're far more engaged with it as well, rather than saying, right, you have to go and sit on this training session, where we're fortunate to have really good people where they're engaged with that kind of thing, but they will be more engaged when they're finding things out for themselves off their own bat and then sharing that with their team. And there's that sense of pride, I think, when you find out something and you share it with other people and they're really engaged with it and they buzz from it as well. Um, so that self-development thing is critical. So I'd highly recommend book clubs within departments for people to knowledge share on current uh, current information. I, that is genius, Steve, because like it's so inexpensive and any company mm. could do it. There's no excuse. Like no matter what your training budget is, that mm. is uh, absolutely doable. Um, exactly. And it's funny enough, we uh, within my Inner Circle coaching program, we have a book club as well, uh, mm-hmm. which, you know, we... Now, how does yours work? Does everyone read the same book or and then discuss it? Or everyone reads a different book and then presents what they've learned? So it's a bit of a, um, a mix, depending on the team, to be honest with you. We've done it previously where everybody reads the same book. Um, and we've also done it where people will read different things. And so some people will read... Because blogs, whilst they're shorter form, actually you can get enormous value from a blog because they tend to be right hot off the press. So you could be reading the current trends in software engineering, or you could be reading what's the latest in customer success, how to manage an account effectively. So it really will vary depending on you know, the team and what they're focusing on at that particular point. Somebody might read a book and say, guys, like you need to be reading this. It's incredible. Um, but someone else might read another book and say, I read this book. Here are the 10 key things that I took away from it. And then people would then take it upon themselves to go and read that in full themselves. So very much a combination. I think, again, it's important to let it be led by the teams and how they see best. We try and be as unprescriptive, non-prescriptive, not sure what the word is, but we try not to prescribe as much as possible because the more you empower your team to make their own decisions on their learning again the more engaged they are with it if you say right everybody has to read this book now that's great and there's benefit there but again anytime you're prescribing there's there's less engagement than if people are taking it upon themselves awesome that uh that's a genius idea that's like my gold nugget for this um for this call steve listen um what i'd love to get your opinion on this because in developing people and helping them to achieve their full potential and 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 um, perform at their peak the environment and mm-hmm. like a picking up knowledge by osmosis and being part of like having that buzz uh, when I was coming up that was really important mm-hmm. um, however due to the pandemic and the fact that 
a lot of people now are working remotely, either full time or part of the time. It's much harder to create that a the atmosphere and the buzz of working, you know, alongside other people, and the energy and the sort of productivity that comes from that. But also just the learning opportunities of sharing ideas over a coffee in the lunchroom, or you know, just hearing the way that someone else is selling, and then going, "Oh, I like that. I'm going to try that on my next mm. call." Or a manager being able to pick up, like, hear something and coach them right then and there. And mm. say, how about on the next call, try asking the question this way. Mm. And, you know, and then w- doing it remotely. And, and so I, I have actually interviewed James Kahn on this okay. show. And he was very, like, he's, people have to be in the office. Like, mm. it's especially uh, younger, you know, and by young, I mean junior in their career. Mm. People who are learning the business, mm. they, they have to be in the office. And he's like, you know, very uh, definite about that. But I've interviewed other successful leaders and they are going completely remote and it's still mm. working for them. Yeah. How, what's what's your stance on this and how have you guys made it work? Sure. So my personal preference for commercial teams, particularly where they're heavily phone-based roles, my preference is definitely more time in the office than not. We don't enforce anybody to be in every single day. Um, in our sales teams, particularly for the SDR teams and the more junior AEs, um, we would say to be in the office four days a week, exactly for that reason. Whereas our technology functions, they are able to be far more remote because in the technology function, you're not you're not learning from sitting next to people anywhere near as much. Yes, there's definitely you know some learning that you can do by sitting next to your colleague, but for everything you've just said there on the sales side, you overhear people's calls. Oh, that was a great, you know, you delivered that really well. That was great. And then in reverse, being able to say to somebody, oh, I tried this. Why don't you try that on your next call and share that knowledge and that expertise? But also I think from a sales side of things, particularly when cold calling, that can be, you know, it's a tough, repetitive task. And I think for me personally, when I was selling, I definitely benefited from the energy of being around other people as well. Um, So having that shared goal, everybody's doing the same thing together, um, I think is, um, yeah, there's definite benefit to being in the office. So for our commercial teams, they're more in the office uh, and then the technology teams less so because I think um, they don't need to be. But yeah, my for me personally, I'm in five days a week because I like that I'm a sociable person. I like to be around people, but I definitely get that um, you know, for a day a week, potentially being at home can be better to just get through a volume of work without distractions. Um, so yeah, we we definitely lean more in the, in the office more than not for commercial people, um, but not necessarily five days a week. Awesome. Okay, no, that makes sense. So you've just you've got a clear policy, and you've got good reasons why that's the way that you do it at Sourcebreaker. So uh, so I respect that. Um, what's next for Sourcebreaker? Like, what do you guys, what's the vision currently? Because you've already, you know, broken all these records in terms of growth. What's, what happens next? Yeah, sure. So, um, our vision is to be the global leader in AI-driven talent matching. So I think we've we're quite well established now in the UK as the as the as the leader. We're we're, we're winning or have won most of the larger enterprise organisations now in the UK. Uh, we're increasing presence in the US as well, winning some a number of the larger organisations into the US. So for us, the target is to continue to expand our presence in the US, then move more into Europe and the Asia Pacific market as well. Um, we feel that there's a a, a very large market. Um, 
to be taken for the for the matching world uh, and for us it's to be yeah, the global leader in AI driven talent matching I think we're well on the way with that in in Europe and it's pushing more and more into the US which we've you know we've got a, a good presence in now taking that even further awesome no that makes that makes a lot of sense um we are almost out of time, Steve, but could you just, since you, you specialize in AI-driven, um, you know, sourcing technology, what tips can you give to, because this is a hot topic right now, people are desperate for candidates sure. um, and want to find candidates that their competitors or indeed their clients own TA teams haven't already got access to, um, what you know, what would be some quick tips that you can leave people with to help them get better at uh, uncovering more, you know, larger talent pools? Yeah, sure. So I think one of the things that we naturally look to do is when when we're in a rush to find candidates or find anything, we'll take shortcuts in order to to get there. And there's a really good phrase that I'm going to get completely wrong. Um, it's like if you're cutting down a tree, you want to spend 90% of the time sharpening the axe and then cut the tree. That's not right. the exact phrase, but the, you know, the message is there. Um, and so spending a bit more time thinking about your search and making sure you're covering all bases because you might expect that if you're looking for a Java developer from an investment bank, you can type in a handful of words like Java and developer, bank, banking, financial services, and run your search and then you'll find all the candidates. The reality is a really good example on LinkedIn. There's over half a million candidates that work at the likes of Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, City, Credit Suisse, all of these top tier banks. They don't mention the word bank, banking or financial services anywhere on their profiles because as far as they're concerned, they might be a Java developer at Goldman Sachs. There's no no reason for them to mention the word bank. They're a developer, they work at Goldman Sachs. And so an enormous number of candidates are missed by people looking in particular sectors because they type the name of the sector. The same is true of retail, fintech, whatever it might be. So take some time to think about what are the companies in this space that I'd like to find candidates from. And just making that simple change will add a significant number of candidates to um, to, to to your pool. But also, again, importantly, most people don't search like that. So you find candidates that fewer people are finding, so they're more likely to respond to uh, your engagement. And another thing to think about is acronyms. So as recruiters, we would typically always write an acronym. We wouldn't type out the full phrase. So, for example, in Cisco, um, an IT um, networking um product qualifications there you'd type ccmp ccie but actually candidates don't necessarily think of it in the acronym they will type out the full expression of their qualification another example is jee which is a another technology term um, which is java enterprise edition about 80 percent of candidates type java enterprise edition but as recruiters i've never seen a recruiter i say never one in a hundred recruiters maybe would type in java enterprise edition the majority would type in jee so when thinking about acronyms type out the full expression as well as the acronym and again you'll find uh, a lot more candidates there's countless more different tips and tricks uh, available to you like that but that's a couple of really quick and easy ones that you can get massive value from Awesome. Listen, Steve, if people want to learn more about Sourcebreaker and uh, how it could potentially help them to uncover more candidates and, and fill more jobs faster, what's the best way from them to do that? So I would say jump on the website, have a look at what we do. Um, we work with everybody from you know the largest multinational agencies, people like um, Allegis, people like Hayes, all the way to one-person businesses and everything in between there. So if you're a staffing agency, recruitment business, um, jump on the website, have a look at what we do, uh, and then you'll be able to send a message to us on the website. One of our sales guys will get back to you very, very quickly um, to walk you through exactly how we can help. But yeah, anybody looking for more candidates or more opportunities, um, 
we should be able to help. Fantastic. Steve, really enjoyed this. Some Likewise, fantastic uh, ideas that I think are quite inspiring for you know, recruit, recruitment entrepreneurs and people who are looking to, to grow their business. So thanks so much. Fabulous. Cheers, Mark. Appreciate having me Thank on. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.